Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. Our guest this week is Bloomberg space reporter Lauren Grush. In her new book, The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts, Grush details the story of six American women from different backgrounds who all became a part of NASA legend and lore as the first U.S. women to fly in space. While most of us know the name of Sally Ride, the other five are not as well known, perhaps with the tragic exception of Judith Resnick, who died in the Challenger explosion in January of 1986. But each of the stories of Ride, Resnick, Anna Fisher, Kathy Sullivan, Ray Seddon, and Shannon Lucid is compelling and inspiring. Lauren Grush joins us now to talk about the six. Lauren Grush, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks so much for having me. Well, before we go any further, let me just tell you that... uh, I've read a lot of space books in my time, space history books. So, you know, I'm pretty picky when it comes to these types of books. And I rank yours right up there near the very top. It's one of the best best stories I've ever read about the space program. I thoroughly enjoyed it from cover to cover. That is maybe my favorite compliment I've received. Thank you so much. (laughs) And I I really mean it because I found myself just, you know, falling in love with the story of these women and the way you tell it. And it's just, it's really well done. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of reportage. And I know it was, must've been difficult because you did it during the pandemic, right? It was definitely, it was difficult and easy in various ways. Yes. I I would Mm -hmm. not recommend writing a book during a, a global pandemic. Probably the biggest barrier was you know, I just couldn't travel and, or at least travel meaningfully. I I could have traveled, but there wasn't much I could do when I get there. So most of my interviews were done over Zoom. um, And then the archives were closed for pretty much the entirety of the research process. So I really had to do as much as I could remotely, uh, which made things difficult because, you know, the, the time period that I was researching is the 70s and 80s mostly. And a lot of that stuff, you know, some of it has been digitized, but not all of it. And so it really was kind of, you know, searching for searching for gold as and, you know, an online system that wasn't quite up to snuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk a bit about some of those challenges as we move along. But uh, before we really get into the book, I'd like to know a bit more about you. You're a space reporter for Bloomberg. Tell us about how how you became a space journalist. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always saying uh, I was born into space, whether I liked it or not. Both of my parents worked for the shuttle program at NASA's Johnson Space Center. So I grew up outside of Houston in a community that was very close to the space program. Most of my friends' parents had were, had jobs at NASA in some capacity or worked for the space program in some capacity. Um, so I really grew up with this whole, the shuttle program in, in my life. It was very a ubiquitous part of my childhood. Um, but I would say that growing up, I definitely kind of rejected space a little bit because of that, because it was so you know, around me all the time. And, uh, you know, when you're when you're a teen and your parents are doing something and talking about it all the time, I feel like most would relate to not wanting to hear about it 24 seven. So um, and I was I was also a creative kid. I liked telling stories. I always was making home videos for my class projects. So you know, I I felt like taking the route of journalism was the right route for me, though my parents probably would have preferred me going into engineering of some kind. 
but then it was as I embarked on that career to become a journalist and I started, you know, picking the stories that I wanted to tell that I really started to kind of gravitate back towards space. You know, I had gotten a bit of a new perspective about it just by leaving Houston and that environment. And when you leave an area where space is kind of all around and you tell people, you know, that people would be excited to hear about it. And so that kind of gave me this new perspective on it. And, you know, that I was thinking, well, I wonder if I could start, you know, maybe I I won't be in the space program myself. Maybe I could tell the story of space, which would combine, you know, both of these things that I love and sure enough, I <laughs> I seem to have found a trajectory that has allowed me to uh, write about space uh, predominantly, and I've you know I've clung to it ever since. And you're doing it well. Um, what's the what's the genesis story for the six? What what led you to decide this is the story I want to tell in a book? Because you know it's a hard decision, really, when you decide I'm going to write a book. It's 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 an epic undertaking. What made you come to the conclusion that you were going to write about the first American women astronauts? Yeah, absolutely. I well, I've wanted to write a book for some time. I feel like any journalist does, and. I was having a hard time kind of figuring out what I wanted to write about just because um, I knew that centering women's stories in a book about space was something I wanted to do, but it felt a little difficult with a lot of the current events that are going on right now, just because, you know, there are a lot of books being written about the commercial space industry and all that sort of thing. And, but the primarily those books center around, you know, billionaires and there's usually men (laughs) involved and a lot and a lot of attention has been paid to them and that's fine and they're they're amazing books and i know the writers of those books and they're they're all doing a great job but i just wanted to do something different and so i was searching for a topic and one thing that i've been thinking about a lot or just throughout my career in general is you know the women who came before me in this field because you know even now as you know, in the 21st century that we're in, it still can feel a little alienating to be a woman in this field. Um, It's still very male dominated, um, even in space journalism. You know, there's there are amazing women journalists that I've met in this field, and I'm I feel very honored to call them friends and colleagues. Um, but there are still plenty of times I'm in a room or in a press conference or at a at a at a conference, and I just feel extremely outnumbered in terms of the men to women ratio. And so that has that inspired me to think about, well, you know, it must have been even harder for the women who came first in this industry. And so, you know, I started thinking noodling on that a little bit. And then, Um, that led me to this first group of women astronauts. And, you know, I, I say this a lot, but you know, the truth is I really didn't know much about them. I knew who Sally Ride was, I think like most, uh, members of the general public, but I really had not, did not have much of an understanding of the rest of them. And then the fact that there hadn't been a book dedicated to just that group, I thought was a great opportunity to, learn more about this incredible group of women, any one of whom could have been the first American woman to fly. And then also educate myself while fulfilling that goal of telling a story that put women's voices first. Yeah, let's go back a bit with the the culture of NASA. 
um, back in the 1960s with the, the, the origins of the space program, Mercury, Gemini, and then, of course, the Apollo program that famously landed on the moon with Neil Armstrong. Um, there were women involved in the space program, but not many. And mm-hmm. Certainly not as astronauts. There was there was a, a kind of a brief skirmish with maybe trying to do that. I know early on um, with with some women that wanted to be astronauts, but that really never came to fruition. But what was it that changed? And that that's one of the things mm-hmm. that I found really interesting in the book that led to the selection of these six women finally in 1978. Yeah, my my common refrain is that it was internal and external pressure. You know, if you think about the time period that this was all happening in, you know, we had major transformations going on in the country. We had the civil rights movement and we had the feminism movement. And so questions were starting to be asked of NASA about why women and people of color hadn't been included in the astronaut corps leading up to that point. I mean, it really was quite terrible when uh, the first men were going to space with NASA, just the way they were, women were talked about, especially when Valentina Tereshkova flew the first woman to fly to space with the Soviet Union. I mean, the way that they, they talked about the idea of sending women to space, they were talking about how she might've had some kind of breakdown when she was up there. And then when NASA officials were asked about it, they laughed it off as a publicity stunt and made jokes about, you know, changing the weight requirements to, you know, allow women on board. You know, it's just, it just shows how much the the country was changing, how they could get away with saying things like that. But as the 60s turned to the 70s, you know, that kind of mentality was very much going out the door. Um, so yeah, the the world was changing, or at least the, the culture in the U.S. was changing. And then internally, NASA was also getting pressured to, I detail story, about uh, a woman by the name of Ruth Base Harris, who took a, a look at the state of diversity inclusion within the agency at the time. And her report, you know, was extremely bleak in, in what it revealed. You know, there's that quote she has in her report about how NASA has sent three women to space, two of them are spiders and one of them a monkey. And then there was a lot of heat when NASA fired her. And though NASA claims that she was not fired for the report, still brought the report to light, you know, Barbara Streisand effect, if you if you will. So, you know, it was just getting to the point where this was just something they couldn't ignore anymore. And so when they decided to bring on new astronauts for the space shuttle program, you know, they went into that selection process with with diversity and inclusion top of mind. Yeah, and that leads us to the the famous class of 1978 uh, that you refer to as TFNG, mm-hmm. and uh, which I didn't refer to thir- them. They they came they up did. with that name they, themselves. They did in the in the book. It's like T- it's like you see TFNG a lot. Yeah, uh, lots of acronyms in NASA, and there there's one for I you, which stands stands for 35 new guys, and and some of those guys were gals. Yes. <laughs> but I think I didn't make a note in the book that it is interesting that they refer to themselves as the ter- the 35 new guys because I think it's it's illustrative of the what the women wanted, right? They didn't want to be seen as separate from the men. They wanted to be considered just one of the guys, which I think is kind of 
it shows just kind of how what they were not what they were up against at the time, but how they had to fit in when they came onto the program back during this time. You know, now I feel like women are are much they feel a little more comfortable about trying to fit in, but also celebrating what makes us unique for being women. But back at the time, as the first pioneers, I don't, it was more about like, you didn't talk about the differences, you know, it was very much, how do you assimilate as easily as possible and not make a fuss about it? Yeah. And um, there's also another meaning to TFNG that's kind of naughty, but uh, you know, <laughs> yes. the, the original astronauts, a lot of times were just not, you know, oh God, here comes the new guys, the, the F new guys. And so they, they have that, they're kind of flying that flag right in front of everybody too. It's like, yeah, we're the, we're the TFNG. Yes, exactly. But I love, I think that also shows one of my favorite things about writing this book and you know, interviewing the astronauts is they're hilarious. I think they, they have, they make so many jokes, some of them rather crude, you know, as I detail in the book, but yeah, they just had a great sense of humor. And I think that that double meaning to their name just is, it shows just how cheeky they were and, you know, they loved, they knew how to, to make fun of themselves. And 35 is a big class of astronauts brought about because this shuttle program, as you mentioned, you know, called on a new new kind of astronauts. They needed mission specialists, payload specialists, people that would, you know, be doing work in space instead of just being astronaut pilots. Yeah, and I think that shift in thinking is really one of the main points of access for this these the women to come on board, right? You know, the the I don't want to say the original sin of astronaut selection, but in a way, you know, that criteria that NASA had originally placed of requiring jet piloting experience was what barred women from entering the program to begin with. And so by creating that mission specialist role, it really opened it up not just to women, but to a whole new class of astronauts that I feel like the uh, a few astronauts in the original crews didn't quite understand. You know, this, these were researchers, physicists, uh, medical doctors, you know, that that was kind of a foreign concept for the astronaut program, but it really opened up just a, a new way of thinking of who could be an astronaut at the time. Yeah, and it was interesting. I, I think it was Carolyn Huntoon uh, who was there's there's a quote in there where she's you know the she kind of reflects the attitudes of the time because in the '60s there probably weren't that many little girls that dreamed of being an astronaut, which is a shame. And now now you know hopefully there's lots more of that. But I remember there was something along the lines where she was giving a talk and some woman, young woman said to her, it's like, well, I can't imagine anybody wanting to do that. And she replied, well, you know, maybe you don't, but there are women who do. Yeah. And I think one thing I love and I like to highlight about the whole selection process is the fact that half of the women in the six didn't think about being astronauts as little girls. You know, there you have Shannon who was dreaming of it and Anna and Ray who thought about, you know, if they became doctors, maybe they could be doctors on space station someday. So yes, you did have those lifelong dreamers, but Sally, Judy, and uh, Kathy hadn't, it was not something they really ever considered until they saw the advertisement for the selection process. And so I like to highlight that because it shows how when you open up 
these uh, initiatives to a wider group of people than you had ever considered before, you inspire people who were previously, you know, thought it was closed off to them. And then you find people who are fantastic. We would have never found Sally Ride if we hadn't done it that way, you know? So it just shows that when you when you open that door, you inspire even more people because they might have thought, oh, that was that was closed off to me. I could never have done that. But, you know, now I can. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Lauren Grush, the author of the new book, The Six, the untold story of America's first women astronauts. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. Let's return now to our conversation with Lauren Grush. Lauren is a space journalist reporting for Bloomberg News and the author of the new book, The Six, which tells the story of America's first women astronauts. The selection process itself was really fascinating to go through with you in your book. I was just wondering if you could talk about some of the things you found interesting and surprising about that. Yeah, I really loved learning about the selection process, just hearing from the different astronauts about what they remember of the selection process. And throughout the whole book, anytime someone was selected for something, I was just fascinated with how that was that decision was made because I think I had preconceived notions of what went into astronaut selection. But the truth is, even today, it's kind of shrouded in mystery. So to have a little bit of a glimpse behind the curtain was nice. But in order to become one of the TFNGs, the finalist candidates, you know, there were about 200 or so of them. They each had to come to Houston to, for a week to do a round of medical testing, just to make sure they passed a basic physical exam. But then they also had to go through a psychological evaluation with a good cop psych and a bad cop psych. So, <laughs> you know, the good cop would ask them how they felt about their mother what animal they wanted to be reincarnated as if they came back to life. And then the bad cop would, you know, prescribe some ridiculous task, like counting backwards from 100 by 7. And then when you inevitably messed up, because who's not going to mess up, uh, he would yell at you and proclaim it very loudly and see your reaction. Right. And it's just psychological warfare. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, you know, it's I didn't have time to get into the book, but I did speak with a partner of one of the psychologists and how what they were looking for in terms of those answers. And it was really fascinating stuff. But I did learn later that ultimately it was a kind of a pass fail situation. <laughs> so while they had all these different you know, answer, it wasn't even the answers really, it was how people answered the questions or what, how they reacted to things. Um, it really was a pass fail. What, what really, you know, made was the deciding factor was how they responded to questions during this hour and a half long interview that they had with the selection board. And that seemed, I mean, it sounded like a pretty straightforward interview. They would just ask you about your life and uh, what you'd been up to in your career and then, you know, they were looking for various traits, too. And the ones I like to highlight are, you know, they were obviously looking for team players, which seems pretty straightforward. But, you know, since the space shuttle was, you know, bigger and allowed for larger crews, you know, you'd be working with a lot more people on these flights. 
And so they obviously wanted to make sure that, you know, people could work together as a team. But some of the other traits I, you know, I was interested to learn about was they wanted to make sure people, you know, had a diverse range of interests, right? So for instance, Sally was probably a great pick because she was both an astrophysicist, but a tennis player. And so that demonstrated to the selection board that, you know, it wasn't that she was solely focused on one area. She had interests, you know, beyond her field of research. And that was important for the shuttle because, you know, these, these mission specialists, they were going to be wearing a lot of different hats. You know, they were going to be deploying satellites, running experiments, you know, uh, communicating with the, the mission control, you know, it was, it was going to be a lot of different things that they had to do while on the shuttle. So they wanted to make sure that, you know, they they could be jacks of all trades. Um, and then my favorite is, you know, they were looking for people who really understood what it meant to be an astronaut. And that is patience. <laughs> you know, it's important to remind people that when you are an astronaut, most of your time as an astronaut is spent on Earth, you know, at least in the shuttle era for sure, you know, the flights that you would take on the shuttle were about a week long, you know. So most of your time, years were spent on Earth before you'd actually go to space. And you would spend that time supporting other people going to space, which I'm sure was a little agonizing for folks from, you know, the longer they had to wait. So they just wanted to make sure that the candidates understood that and were willing to wait and be patient. And so that was also a major deciding factor in, in who they picked ultimately to to join the program. Yeah, most people don't think about that, but it's so true that the life of an astronaut is very little of it is flying in space. Um, it's kind of like that frosting on the cake, but boy, there's many, many layers of cake before you get to that frosting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and for them, you know, the the frosting is all they want to eat. <laughs> no, like it's sure. their, their sole mission is to fly to space. So, you know, imagine having to wait, uh, you know, and watch your colleagues fly before you. I'm sure it was, you know, it was tough. And there have been astronaut candidates who never flew, you know, who never got to. So it's, you yeah. know, it, it, it can be, it can be, like you said, very trying of one's patience. And then speaking of patience, once they, they had gone through the selection process, you know, getting notified took a long time. It was like, yeah. it, it took a while to decide and, you know, for these, these six women to get notified. That was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But I really loved, you know, the, one of the best parts of writing this book was what I call um, flashbulb moments or memories that everybody had where they always remembered exactly where they were when something happened and mm, yeah. getting the getting the call from NASA. Obviously, each one of them had a very vivid recollection of where they were, how it happened and what they were doing. And so those that part was really fun to write about because you know, I, I felt like I was there in those moments when they were happening. Yeah. And then um, the the six uh, women astronauts that are selected, Sally Ride, Judy Resnick, uh, Kathy Sullivan, Anna Fisher, Ray Seddon, and Shannon Lucid, those, those are your six. And then once you become an astronaut candidate and you start going crashing through all this amazing training and busy schedules and everything. Uh, that was really fascinating, the life of a, of a new astronaut. But then there, there comes the mystery, and this has always been fascinating to me, of crew selection. And uh, you tell the story really well of George Abbey, because it, it really is a mystery to a, a, all of them about how, how is it that you have to stand out to get selected for a crew? 
And then like for the first one, how does, how did Sally Ride become the one? <laughs> well, I, even after researching this book, I still think it's a bit of a mystery in terms, but I think with any kind of selection process, especially when people are involved, it's going to be, there's going to be some level of subjectivity and the way, you know, the way George was described by most of the people I spoke to who worked with him, you know, he was not a man of many words, right? So he wouldn't, and the biggest complaint was he didn't tell you where people stood, right? So you weren't sure if you were doing the right thing or if you were doing the wrong thing. You know, it was just kind of an opaque process. But George himself, you know, he said to me, he was like, I don't think there was any special sauce to it. I just tried to match people with the requirements of the mission, you know? So um, when it came to Sally's selection, um, you know, the the biggest thing that people looked at were the the jobs that she was getting leading up to her uh, selection, and you know she was getting what were kind of considered coveted technical assignments. And the biggest one of those, I mean, she was the biggest thing for her was that she was working on the robotic arm, and she's she knew that she was really adept at that. And then she was also assigned as Capcom or a capsule communicator for some of the early shuttle missions. And that was kind of seen as a prime role by the astronauts um, because that was that got you into the mission control and you got to communicate with the astronauts who are in space and then communicate with mission control on the ground. And so that was, everyone was kind of reading the tea leaves on that and, and thought that that was really what was pushing her over the edge. But the truth was they were looking for, you know, a really skilled operator of the robotic arm because it was going to be used in a in a big capacity on the the mission that she was ultimately assigned on STS-7 and so you know the way George described it to me was you know she was great at the robotic arm <laughs> and so that's why he picked her but of course you know there were as I noted in the book other factors came into play obviously everyone knew that the selection of the first woman was going to be you know, a huge deal. And so obviously it wasn't, it wasn't as bare bones as just who was the best at the robotic arm. You know, there were other things that were considered. Yeah. And of course, being the first for anything, whether it be like for Neil Armstrong, for example, the first to walk on the moon, you know, not too many people remember who Alan Bean was, who was, you know, the, the fourth guy to walk on the moon, but he was a fantastic astronaut. And he also plays a role in your story as a, as somebody who really comes around as very supportive of the women astronauts. And I, I really liked hearing that because I, I love Alan Bean. He was a great guy. And uh, I'm also close friends with his daughter. Oh, great. Well, yeah. And the women had amazing things to say about him. And, you know, I, I'm sure maybe he probably feels embarrassed about, you know, how he originally felt. But I, I liked that. You know, I think it's important to show how people can change their minds. And, you know, it, it, and that was kind of the the great thing about the six is that they showed through their determination and, you know, how dedicated they were to their jobs that the job of an astronaut is just as female as it is male, you know. So sometimes you just need to see it in action in, or, in order to, you know, be pushed over the edge like that. And for Sally, as it, you know, was with Neil too, uh, there comes this crushing amount of attention when you are the first. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it, it becomes pretty clear from uh, both reading your book and Lynn Schur's book about uh, Sally that uh, she really, I don't know that she was emotionally psychologically really prepared for for what was to come 
the attention that she got. And some of it really was crushing. Yeah. And that was something that her husband at the time, Steve Hawley, noticed too. And he said to me, you know, when she first got picked, she was very excited about, you know, being on a crew and getting to train for space. But he noticed that she really wasn't thinking about what it would mean to be the first American woman. She was mostly focused on just getting to go to space. But then ultimately, and and she she did have that protection a little bit by getting to train and NASA could use her training as an excuse not to confront, you know, the 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 pressing media attention. But then when, yeah, when she came back from her flight, that was when she really, the the floodgates opened, as she liked to say, and that protection that she had just completely evaporated. And so she really wasn't prepared to deal with that. And it ultimately prompted her to seek therapy for it and because she was confused as to how she was feeling this way. But you know, over time, she did come to appreciate it. And it did ultimately lead her to her work, you know, uh, educating young women and trying to inspire young children to go into STEM by meeting young women through that process. But yes, the initial feelings that she had were overwhelming at the time. Yeah, you tell a great story um, with the journalist and her her, her friend from her youth, Sue Oki, at uh, the Smithsonian, I believe it was, where her friend tells her, it's like, well, you know, your, your name's going to be up here, you know, right alongside with Amelia Earhart. And Sally just, you know, kind of wants no part of that. Like, yeah. no, don't be ridiculous and just uh, forget that. And, and yet, you know, it's true. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it goes back to what we were saying, how other factors came into play when Sally was chosen. You know, I spoke with her commander for STS-7, Bob Crippen, and, you know, he had a bit of a, a say, or at least he was consulted by George in, when they were, you know, thinking of choosing Sally for that flight. And he said that one of the things that they thought about was the fact that, you know, Sally was an introvert and she wasn't one to seek the spotlight. And so they didn't think that this selection would go to her head. And very clearly they were right because, you know, of all the ways that, you know, we've described. And so that trait of hers actually might have helped her get the nod and in the end. So it's and it's interesting um, how, how that factored into it. Yeah. And uh, there's also an interesting story that I've, I found really fascinating. There, there's, of course, the, the late night comedians like Johnny Carson making, you know, really bad jokes about women astronauts and, you know, needing to take their purse or whatever, just really stupid (laughs) stuff. But there was an interesting story about Sally where Bob Hope wanted to do a special about the astronauts and the space program and Neil Armstrong was going to be on it. And they really wanted Sally and she wanted no part of it. Yeah, and her solution was kind of to run away, <laughs> which was a which was kind of her solution for a few things. You know, if she just didn't want to do something, she'd disappear. And uh, you know, some people were not so happy about that, but you know, it's probably a a, a very important form of self care for her because at that moment, you know, she was being overwhelmed, and you know, Bob Hope was not somebody that she was particularly fond of, and so her solution was to just disappear for for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, one of the last people to try to talk her into it was my friend Jerry Griffin, and yeah, you could tell it was, frust- it was frustrating it. for for him. Yeah, I spoke with Jerry about it, and he vividly remembers the whole tale and how he yeah. he was asked to you know try and you know sweeten the deal for her, but she was having none of it. 
I will say that uh, in talks with Jerry recently, that uh, and I was telling him about this book, uh, that uh, he thinks very highly and fondly of all six of these women, that he just yeah. found them to be fabulous, great team players, uh, just really, really superb astronauts. Absolutely. And that was kind of the the through line that I got from most people who worked with them is, you know, whenever I talked about them, everyone was kind of in, a, in agreement that they felt like NASA had really picked the cream of the crop, you know, when it came to picking the first women, they were all really just fantastic at their job and everyone had nothing but great things to say about them. Well, let's let's kind of go through them flight by flight in the order that they flew. We've of course talked about Sally Ride already and, uh, and she's, you know, an, a national hero now and, and died several years ago now from, was it pancreatic cancer? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. yeah. Very sad. Um, but her legacy lives on, like you said, through her educational program for encouraging young women in STEM. Uh, and then the next person to uh, fly was the great Judy Resnick, who who died tragically, of course, in 1986 on the Challenger uh, disaster. But she was really quite, quite an impressive person. Absolutely. And I think, unfortunately, you know, obviously because of the way she died, she's most remembered for that flight on Challenger. But what I really loved about this book was getting to dive into her flight before she flew on Challenger and, you know, the contribution that she did make to the the space program before the more infamous part of her career. And that part was just so fun and getting to talk to people about her, you know, everyone really had a very, you know, they all described her in a very similar way. It was, you know, that she she could take, uh, you know, she could take a lot of ribbing, which, you know, all the astronauts love to do, but she knew how to give it right back to people. And I love that that was, that was a pretty common refrain that most people told me. And so it was, it was a little easier to paint a picture of her, um, even though, you know, we, we obviously can't talk to her. And, and most people who did know her have passed or, you know, they, it's, it's hard to get in, in contact with them. So yeah, I really loved writing about her. And I thought, I think she just has a fascinating story and her flight, you know, was very interesting. The first flight, not Challenger, um, you know, cause it had that paddleboard. And um, that was another one of those moments, those flashbulb moments that people remember so vividly because it was such a scary moment for the crew. So the people that were on that flight, explained to me in vivid detail what they were feeling and what they remember. And so getting to write that was like a mini, you know, movie scene that I felt like I was there for. It it really was. It was riveting, the, the account of that, because uh, I, you know, I vaguely remembered, oh, yeah, that was a big problem. And But reading your account of it, I was like, oh, my gosh, that was really bad. Yeah, exactly. And also hearing, I mean, I had heard from I'd talk to or I'd listen to other people who were there that day who weren't necessarily on the shuttle. And for them, it was just as terrifying, too, because they really had no idea what was going on. You know, they thought that the shuttle was about to blow up or something crazy like that. So, yeah, for everyone involved, that was a pretty a pretty tense day. Yeah. And uh, also just shows her medal. You know, she was just an amazing astronaut and, and person and uh, the kind of person you would definitely want to, if you're going to do, do some hazardous undertaking and fly into space, I can think of a lot worse persons to fly with than Judy yeah. Resnick. She just, and oh, one interesting story uh, that I was not really aware of was Judy's hair and a camera. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that one, you know, it's so funny because 
you know, in the story or as it's been told to me, she swore all of her crewmates to silence, right? That they uh, could not tell anybody. And embedded in that, you know, is pretty clear. She knew that if the story got out that her hair had gotten jammed in the IMAX camera, that would dominate all of the headlines, especially her being the second American woman to go to space. So she she had made all of her, you know, she had sworn all her crewmates to secrecy. Unfortunately, I think it, uh, it was revealed before me, not unfortunately, but, you know, Mike Mullane wrote a really hilarious book and he revealed it in his story. Um, and I, I was talking to Steve Hawley and he was mentioning, yeah, it's like I was I thought that was under embargo, but I guess that now we can talk about it because <laughs> Mike revealed it. I was I was going to keep it to my grave. But since it's been revealed, you know, <laughs> I guess we'll talk about it. Yeah, her hair got caught in the IMAX camera, right? Yes, yeah. And then I listened to the air to ground transcript and they basically they were just saying, Oh yeah, it jammed. <laughs> yeah. You know, they didn't really give an explanation and nobody asked. <laughs> didn't say and it's interesting, it's kind of ironic because she got asked a lot about her beautiful hair. Yeah, I know, exactly. She her hair was already the focus, whether she liked it or not, just because she hadn't cut it short and you know. Uh, it was the first time many had seen, you know, hair like that in a, a microgravity environment. If you're just joining us, our guest is Bloomberg News space reporter Lauren Grush. She's the author of the new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation with Bloomberg News space reporter Lauren Grush. In her new book, The Six, Lauren tells the amazing stories of America's first women in space. Okay, well, let's get to our the, the third of the the astronauts, the six. Uh, Kathy Sullivan is just, what an amazing explorer she is to this day. And she flew on Challenger in 1984, was her first flight. And she's also dove to the Challenger deep, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. She's yeah. an oceanographer and an astronaut. She's constantly pushing the envelope of where she can go, <laughs> which I think is fantastic, you know, and and that is a through line she's had since the beginning, right? You know, when she was a kid, she was obsessed with travel and maps and exploring new territories and things of that nature. So it's incredible to see her, you know, find ways to scratch that itch throughout her career. And Kathy also was the first American woman to um, do an EVA, walk in space. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's interesting. One of the things I w was curious to learn about was, you know, how there were kind of concerns about her doing that, the EVA or the spacewalk. You know, she detailed a moment where they thought she would have to do a longer pre-breathe process to adapt to the pressure changes. And she, because she was a woman, so she basically had to, you know, find the science that would help support, you know, why she didn't need to do this uh, separate pre-breathe procedure. And so, you know, it just goes to show with each time they had a new, they were embarking on a new challenge or something that women hadn't done before. You know, they all, they all had their own little challenges along the way. 
Yeah. And I was thinking it was kind of the same silly stuff back in the very beginnings of the space program with, you know, oh, we don't know if humans can survive in space, you know, in the mm-hmm. microgravity, they're going to pass out or, you know, become yeah. so disoriented, they won't be able to function. And, you know, that was all baloney, too. You know, I think it's all it's all meant, you know, everyone's got good intentions, obviously, but embedded in those good intentions are a bias, you know, mm-hmm. that we need to think about, you know, yeah. as as we move forward. Okay, let's talk about one of my favorite characters. They're all wonderful, but yeah. <laughs> I just love Anna Fisher. The way the book opens is so beautiful with her in the cockpit before Sally's flight, um, and she's pregnant. And it's, it's you can just visualize her in the quiet of that spacecraft the night before flight, basically just kind of mind, minding the switches and making sure everything's okay. It's just a beautiful moment that you portray. Yeah, I was when I read that in Lynn Schur's biography. It's a it's a brief moment ahead of Sally's flight. I I knew immediately. Oh, this is how I wanted to open the book because it is such a beautiful scene, and the fact that that could have never happened before until Sally flew, until the six had been had come on board. I just thought it was a really powerful moment, and obviously, you know, Anna's story is very much wrapped up in her pregnancy and and her daughter and 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 her you know title so as you, as it were as a mother and so you know that was just it was just a little taste of what was to come for Anna on her journey to space yeah our first mom our first mom yeah astronaut. first mom yeah and that yeah. was a title that the soviets could not take away <laughs> right Yay. so finally the, beat them at something yeah <laughs> one of the themes throughout the book obviously and throughout history is that the soviets like to to send somebody up to beat us when it came to claiming a title so obviously we always announced what we were going to do exactly as soon as, as, soon as we, <laughs> we did it they're like oh secret. you think you're going to do that well okay yeah. Yeah. well yeah. you know nasa is taxpayer funded so they gotta they gotta be transparent and you know the launches are on television and a yeah, exactly. nine yards she only had the one flight uh, but it was a really important one she she really uh played a vital role you want to tell us about you know the highlights of her flight Yeah, so her flight was so interesting, and I loved writing her chapter because of the events leading up to it, right? So she had gone on the Today Show to talk about those very specific satellites that she'd end up saving because she was going on to talk about uh, the current mission that was launching those satellites. And as she was on her way to the Today Show, the satellites failed, and she was asked about them. And they asked her, you know, do you think they'll go pick up those satellites in orbit and she said and she told me she was like no I don't I don't (laughs) I think I was thinking that was a little crazy you know but then she then ultimately wound up that she did (laughs) and it became a really cool mission that had never really been done before you know rendezvousing and and plucking them out of orbit and into the cargo bay. And and I, it was really cool to learn about how they did it. You know, anytime, and there are a few moments in the book, we'll talk about it with Ray, where they kind of had to, I would, I use the term MacGyver, you know, they would they have, have to, to invent stuff as they go along. Yeah. Nobody's done invent. it before. And that was always really fun. I was like, how do they come up with this solution out of all the solutions that they did? And learning about those processes were really interesting. One of the things I love about NASA and stories like that is just the ability to problem solve on the fly. Yes, exactly. And, you know, they don't have a lot of time when they're in space either. So in those moments, especially during uh, when they were trying to pack in one of the satellites, I can't remember um, who was 
who was trying to pack it in, but there was a little clamp that wasn't working for one of the satellites. And so their solution was for one of the astronauts just to hold on to it with his hands, you know, <laughs> they had to come up with that pretty quickly, you know, and, and it's, it's very, it's interesting. It's a great juxtaposition because so much time is spent preparing for these missions on the ground and then they have, they get to space and then something goes wrong. And then they, and then that, you know, that time frame for how they prepare or figure out the solution is, you know, greatly limited. And so it's, it's funny to watch them go from a very long, slow process like that to a, okay, we have to figure this out on the fly in a few minutes kind of situation. Yeah. And Anna was um, also married for a time to Bill Fisher. Uh, and he, both of them were, were doctors, emergency room doctors, right? Yes. And both astronauts. So that was another you know thing was, this was the time when America was getting their first taste of married astronauts. <laughs> and it wasn't just uh, Anna and Bill, but also and uh, Sally and Steve and Ray and Hoot. And yeah. so, yeah, the country was enamored with their love stories, obviously, yeah. because they that had never happened before. Yeah. And both Anna and Ray said were doctors, right? Yes. And what one thing that I was so intrigued by is they both told me that and I think I said this earlier, they had always dreamed of being astronauts, but they didn't think it was available to them. So a, a secondary reason or motivation for going into medicine was the idea that, well, maybe I'll be on a space station someday because they, they need doctors and I'll have the right credentials for that, <laughs> which I was the fact that they both had that yeah. had uh, that idea was just incredible. <laughs> well, it's kind of interesting when you think about like the Star Trek effect on NASA because uh, Nichelle Nichols was, you know, kind of recruited to kind of help recruit uh, new kinds of astronauts. Pe yeah. People more diverse. And she she really took that to, to heart. And it made me think about, well, maybe, maybe Anna and Ray were watching Star Trek and they wanted to be like Dr. McCoy. <laughs> Yeah, perhaps. I'm, I'm sure there were quite a few people. In fact, I know there are quite a few people who watch Star Trek and, you know, a lot of the astronauts, you know, credit Star Trek or Star Wars or all sorts of science fiction to, you know, inspiring their love for space. So it definitely had an impact. And, and Bones McCoy was absolutely a, just a fantastic character. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's talk about Ray's flight. She was uh, on Discovery, and her mm -hmm. flight, first flight was 1985. Give us some of the highlights of her missions. Yeah, so I called her mission the heist because when we talk about oh, yeah. really having to – MacGyver situation that was that was kind of the central point of her flight. So what I loved about hers, well, first off, with Ray, you know, I was very intrigued to learn that you know she the she was supposed to be the first mom, you know, and and it was a great illustration of just how tenuous the schedule was back in those days, you know, because payloads were constantly switching around, something would break, and they would have to, you know go back, you know, take the the satellite back into the warehouse and work on it, you know. So the the schedule was constantly being shifted and every, you know, they had an adage that was like, you know, don't fall in love with your payload. With your payload, yeah. Yeah. That, that was great. <laughs> and so that that happened to Ray. You know, she was, you know, supposed to be the first mother to fly and then uh they had an issue with their payload and it or actually it was Judy's flight, you know, that aborts. 
So it was that that whole scenario I thought was really from a storytelling perspective was obviously gold for me just because it was, you know, here was one woman's flight having a sizable impact on another woman's flight, causing the historical order to shift around, you know, the story writes itself (laughs) in a way. But the main concern for Ray was that she thought that her flight was going to be somewhat boring. You know, she talked about how it was pretty run of the mill flight. And then it became really interesting very quickly when one of their satellites failed to, you know, deploy as planned. And so they concocted this kind of crazy rescue mission while they were in space or to to see if they could try and salvage that satellite and you know learning how they went through it and all the the different things that they had to do i mean they were cutting holes in in plastic binder covers <laughs> you know that that was pretty pretty rich to learn about yeah and okay finally um let's, let's save one of the best for last shannon lucid the last of the group to fly but she got to fly a lot yeah and that's kind of you know i that is a part where I wish I could have done more with Shannon's story because I feel like more her her story really is you know what came after this time period in the book you know her her time on Mir and her record breaking mission I think you know and she she actually has a book of her own I, I encourage people to go out and read it about training for that mission um, it's called Tumbleweed. And um, she goes through, you know, what she was feeling, how she trained for it, what it was like. But yeah, so I feel bad that I really didn't have the time to get into that part of her career, but I did try and not add it in the epilogue. But what I really loved about Shannon's mission was less about her time in space on her first flight, but the story she told me of going to Saudi Arabia after because oh, yeah. one of her crewmates was uh, the first uh, royal to go to space, a Saudi prince. And there was a lot of, you know... Um, it's like right out of Mission Impossible or yeah, something. Yeah, it really was. Like, how do I get to Saudi Arabia in as short a time frame as possible? <laughs> um, but it's a great story. And, it, and it's so illustrative of Shannon and just her, you know, her go with the flow attitude. <laughs> she just, she was like, you know, she'd oh, be picked up by somebody and then she flew on a private plane with somebody, you know, it was, it was really a, yeah, a great story. That was quite a story. Yes. Yeah. Um, what's next for you? Cause you've been reporting like on SpaceX and Starship and things like that. Um, yeah. How's that, how's that aspect of your work going? <laughs> well, it's a very exciting time to be a space reporter because there is just so much going on. You know, back in the back in this era, the the six era, it really was just the shuttle flying. And now we have NASA, we have SpaceX, we have Blue Origin, we have Virgin Galactic, we have ULA, we have all sorts of different startups coming online proposing new and wild things to do in space. You know, it's actually gotten to a point where I I really cannot truly cover it all. And it's definitely an exciting time, a busy time. Um, but, you know, it, it. I can't ever say that I'm bored. <laughs> well, Lauren, it's uh, great to talk to you about this wonderful book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks again for joining us. It's a joy to talk to you and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our guest, Lauren Grush. You can get her new book, The Six, The Untold Story of America's First Women Astronauts at most major booksellers or order it from your local community bookstore. 
Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. The theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. Blue Dot.